It's your birthday, it's your birthday, happy birthday. The NHS is now 70 years old, more or less. What are you bringing to the birthday party? Um, some people may remember seeing a figure on the side of a bus a while back uh, of... Uh, 350 million, million a week, pounds a week yeah. in cash. Well, I can tell you that what, we're, what I'm announcing will mean that at, in 2023-24, there will be about 600 million pounds a week. Happy birthday, NHS. That was the message from the Prime Minister last week as she announced an extra 20 billion pounds of funding for the NHS in England by 2023. But is that enough? And where will the money come from? The NHS needed significantly more investment than what has been announced today. But hang on, how can you possibly say this, this is not enough? So just, She's offering enough. an average of 3.4% increase on the NHS spending. You went into the last election just a year ago offering 2%. So how can you say that this significant increase on your offer is not enough money? Okay, quite, quite straightforwardly. There's been talk of a Brexit dividend, does that mean the infamous battle bus promise has come true? Or will some of us have to pay more tax to keep our NHS on life support? And whatever happened to fixing our broken social care system? Today on the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're talking NHS funding, social care, battle buses and inevitably Brexit. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. Joining me to talk about how to keep our NHS alive for another 70 years, I'm joined by Sarah Bedford, who is Head of Social Policy here at the New Economics Foundation. Uh, Sarah, what's your favourite hospital drama? Oh my goodness. Can we um, film TV? I don't watch any. I, oh no, Green Wing. I love <laughs> Green Wing. Uh, Green Wing yeah. is my favourite. Comedy, but we'll allow it. Great. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. We're also joined by Andy Cowper, who is the comment editor of the Health Service Journal. Is that right? I am. Nailed it. Same question. Uh, I try not to watch them very much because I have to spend a lot of time in my professional life observing them. Mm. Um, the, it wasn't a drama, but the hospital series on BBC Two was great. Well, that was really good, but uh, I don't watch many hospital dramas. Sorry. No, that's fine. I just love the moral superiority already. I don't really watch TV. <laughs> oh, no, I watch TV. I, I just don't watch hospital dramas. It's not a genre that tweaks. I'm no. sorry, it doesn't no. tweak me. Holby? No. No, sorry. Just Greenwing. Not among friends. Okay, so <laughs> just kidding. We're going to have fun. All right, so we're going to talk about whether the money Theresa May announced last week is enough to fix the NHS's problems, um, or is it just a sticking plaster? So first up... How much do we already spend on the NHS and how big of an increase is this £20 billion? It sounds like a lot, but let's put it in perspective. So whoever wants to jump in, let's go. So in terms of how much we spend at the moment, um, the budget for the NHS is £114 billion a year. And in terms of the increases that Theresa May is promising, they work out on average as rises of 3.4% a year which actually, if you look back over the whole history of the NHS since it was founded in 1948, are less than the average increases that we've seen year on year since then, which are 3.7%. So that kind of puts it into context. Mm. Um, she's talked about it as securing the NHS future. She's talked about it as a great 70th birthday present for the NHS, but it's not as generous as it might seem. Ah, so this is about framing. Interesting. <laughs> Andy, do you have feelings? Thoughts? 
The yes, the the number of three point four percent is about the increase that they're proposing to do for the budget of NHS commissioning board, which is the bit of the NHS which allocates money within the system. I have to get boringly technical here for a minute. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of stuff which we consider to be the NHS, which is not in the NHS England budget. So money for public health, money for training, uh, money for a variety of things. So it's correct to say that they've announced 3.4% rise over the next five financial years. Uh, but as soon as you start to consider those other mm. bits of what we would definitely consider to be the NHS, which which won't, we presume, we don't know because we haven't seen the Chancellor's announcement yet, the likelihood is that the, the rise is in fact going to be much more like 3%. We've correctly discussed that the NHS's average long run increase in funding has been 3.7% every year. The things that drive that are, I mean, mainly it's two things. It's an, it's an ageing population. And the other is sort of expensive new technologies. The cancer drugs that are coming onto the market now, often tens of thousands of pounds for a course of treatment. So the fact that healthcare spending rises shouldn't I think probably really surprise us very much. So just to just to clarify on this question, not every part of the NHS budget is increasing then? No, the promised increases are to the NHS. So that can be thought of as frontline healthcare services like GPs, hospitals, mental health services, ambulance services, but it doesn't include other health provision like uh, notably public health. Just to stay zoomed out for a second then, last year we had a humanitarian crisis, I'm putting that in air quotes, you can't see me, listener. Um, but so, so just generally, what sort of state is the NHS in now? I mean, I would suggest that it's, it, it's under a great deal of pressure all the time. Um, talking to people who, who, who run NHS organisations, the, the, the theory used to be, you know, your listeners will have heard the phrase, winter crisis. Yeah. That basically demand drivers in the, the colder months of the year, which are principally flu and pneumonia and also fractured limbs for older people who might go out in icy conditions or just naturally full. So the NHS would expect to be unusually busy between basically the end of November and the end of March. And that was, you know, that was a predictable thing. The NHS knew it was going to be winter every year and would plan for it either better or worse. But the level of pressure that's come on the NHS for for a variety of reasons, some of which are financial and some of which are simply demand. And effectively, winter is here all the time. Yeah. You know, in, in, in game, game of Thrones terms, mm. it, it's, it's, mm. it's always winter. The, the, the NHS doesn't get a respite mm. for about two thirds, three quarters of the year anymore. It is facing really strong demand pressure all the time. How do we compare to other countries then? So looking at the funding that Theresa May has announced, mm. how will this stack us up against what other countries spend on healthcare? So in terms of a comparison with kind of similar countries in Europe, our spending on healthcare tends to be around about the average, I think it's fair to say. That's if you're looking at at it as a proportion of GDP. If you look at it as a proportion of GDP per capita, it's actually a bit less than comparable countries. 
So this it wouldn't be the weekly economics podcast if we didn't talk about Brexit. Um, so there was some debate over exactly where the money was going to come from, and Theresa May said some of it would come from Brexit dividend. <laughs> Does that stack up? No. They're shaking their heads, listeners. They it's are shaking just, their heads. It's just absolute rubbish. Um, it, 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 it's comedy nonsense, I'm afraid. Um, and don't take my word or opinion for it being comedy nonsense. Try, try the Office of Budget Responsibility, which uses the data that's fresh from the Treasury's own data mines. And um, they have uh, produced a report which uh, says that Brexit is likely to have a £15.2 billion negative consequence for the British economy. Uh, so mm-hmm. that, given that in the current way we raise tax, uh, putting a penny on the basic rate of tax gets you about £4 billion. So we've actually got to put nearly four pence on the basic rate of income tax to cover off that cost alone before we even start to discuss putting extra money into the NHS. So my suspicion is, uh, without wanting to make a party political point here, is that Brexit is the reason why this uh, announcement has been made at this time because the mm. nhs hasn't even had its 70th birthday yet so you know in many ways this is this is the worst of all things it's a premature congratulation and um before we even break even on brexit mm. 15.2 billion pounds down uh, but what appears to me to be happening in this situation is because there is a vexed question of parliamentary arithmetic with regards to getting the government's legislation through the House of Commons, my suspicion is that what is uh, what is being done here is not uh, a claim that's based in the community of reality, but it is a claim that's based in the community of Conservative Party unity. So you're trying to hold together the Remain wing of the Conservative Party and the Brexit wing of the Conservative Party, and that's a you know that's a highly unstable um, alliance. Mm. So this is a kind of look over there moment while I do these things over there. I, I mean, I've seen some commentators describe it as an attempt to kind of use the NHS to lock us into Brexit. People want funding increases for the NHS. We know that. Uh, so to connect it to Brexit is something that might be politically useful, but as Andy says, there's no evidence to suggest that there will actually be a Brexit dividend. Okay, wonderful. So (laughs) Theresa May also said that we would have to pay more tax. Um, Mm. So who do you think will end up paying more and how much more? Um, And what would be the, the ideal proposal on that? A good start for this, it wouldn't get us to the 20 billion, but it would but it would be a good start, would be abolishing the upper earnings limit on national insurance. Currently, the way that national insurance is set up means that higher rate taxpayers actually pay proportionally less. Mm. And we've calculated that that would raise 11 billion pounds for the government, which isn't 20 billion pounds, but it helps get us there. If... I understand correctly, one of the things that you're both saying is that the demand will increase over time and it will just get more and more and more expensive to run the NHS as, you know, exponentially. And so then is, are we saying that the solution to that is healthcare will just, we just have to spend more on it every year, forever? Effectively, since 2010, since the coalition government took office, the NHS has not been cut in real terms, but it has had increases that are really significantly below the long run trend of that 3.7%, which which Sarah mentioned, which is the historical 
average of increases. Um, and of course, the NHS got very used to large increases in the decade from 2000 to 2010, because when New Labour came into government in 1997, they promised to leave conservative spending plans in place for two financial years, and they did that. And then after that point, when the NHS was you know, really creaking in late 1999 into 2000, and you know, the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, went on to David Frost's magic sofa, and it was the most expensive seat on a sofa ever because he, he effectively committed to bring the NHS up to the European average of, uh, of spending on health services. So we saw, in fact, 6% real terms, year-on-year -year cash growth. So the, the great slowdown in that funding between 2010 and, and the present day, has got a consequence which is a bit like, you know, if you had a car and you continued to own that car for nearly 10 years and you never serviced it and you never had it MOT'd and, and looked after, then all of a sudden you'd take that car into a garage and somebody would go, well, everything's wrong with this car. You know, mm. you need four new tyres, you need a new transmission, you need a new gearbox, you need, mm. you, you need new everything. And the NHS faces that situation very, very strongly. So I think... It's really important in the here and now that the NHS is able to meet that demand for care. But in the future, what we absolutely need to work towards if we want a sustainable NHS is an economy in which enables us all actually to be healthier and which focuses mm. much more on preventing ill health. Actually, only 10% of our health is determined by access to healthcare. The rest is determined by a whole range of factors, including whether we live in safe, secure housing, whether we have a good job and a decent income, whether we live in a healthy natural environment which isn't polluted. And so action is needed on all of those fronts to improve our health and not just action to tackle ill health through the NHS. So speaking about the, um, a kind of more holistic approach to healthcare then, social care was once again miss, missing from the conversation here. And so we're on the same page. Could you just quickly tell us, Sarah, what is social care and why has it been struggling? Social care is the provision of care and support to adults who need it, perhaps because they're older or perhaps because they're disabled. And it has been struggling. Local councils have tried to ring fence their social care budgets, but they haven't been able to. And since 2010, we've seen cuts of around 10% to social care. The social care system is having to gatekeep more and more and say we can only help people with the most critical mm. needs. Mm. And then that in turn is putting a huge strain on the NHS. Okay. Um, Andy, so the government has promised a green paper on the future of social care. Yes. What do people think should be in that, based on the things that Sarah's been talking about? One of the things which, which many of your listeners probably know is that social care is not like the NHS, as in it's not free at the point of use based on the need. Mm -hmm. uh, social care is means-tested. So basically, if you have assets worth in total more than £19,600 from memory, then you are considered to be not eligible for free social care. Um, mm. The other thing which local councils have had to do to, 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 to kind of try and make their budgets balance um, is raise the criteria, at the threshold at which someone becomes eligible for social care. So the things, the range of things which would have made someone qualify for social care in 2010 
you know, it, it is now much smaller. It is mm. significantly smaller. Uh, but, but what I think people would like to see, I mean, so people in the NHS would certainly like to see, is some understanding of, of, of what actually is the plan for social care. Now, there have been a lot of plans for social care. We know that in recent times there has been the, the Barker Review, the Dillnot Review, you know, all of which have effectively said there has to be really serious analysis of the options, which is, number one, we make social care available on the same basis that the NHS is available. Um, and I think there's a report come out fairly recently from uh, the Institute of Public Policy Research, which Lord Darcy and Lord Pryor, who were Conservative and Labour health ministers, uh, were sort of the co-chairs of this report. And my understanding is that 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 effectively recommended spending quite a significant sum of money to to achieve that. Um, the Delnot proposals were that, uh, from memory, £70,000 or so should be the maximum liability that any individual would, would have to pay themselves for their social care. And after, after that level, government would step in and cover the rest of their cost until the end of their life. And I think Delnot's uh, you know the the unspoken assumption behind that was that the insurance industry might start to provide some products where because mm-hmm. it's very very uncertain who needs social care it's very unclear there's not kind of a linear relationship between need for social care and age in in the same way that there is a much more strongly defined relationship between need for healthcare and age um it's very unpredictable who will have high levels of need for social care mm. so there's there's always been sort of that problem as well effectively one of the things i think there are two problems with social care one of which has got a terrible name its name just doesn't explain to people what it is and does in in precisely the way that the national health service kind of it does tell mm. you it's the so wrong it's the tin, test yeah. uh, what it's supposed to do and yeah. you know so so i think that's partly an issue and i think the other issue is people just sort of it's desperately unaspirational to need social care. Nobody kind of thinks, I'd, I'd really like to have someone coming in and, you know, making me my breakfast or helping me go to the toilet or, you know, mm. cleaning my house for me. I think most people probably still quite fancy a bit of a agency and independence in, in their old age, but of course some people reach a point where they can't have it. So um, are you saying that that translates into a lack of kind of like public pressure or, you know, whatever around mobilising around social care? I, I think it's part of the problem. I think many people assume that social care is free until they... Need they it. are a member of their family need it. Mm. You know, I, I really, this is quite poorly understood. Yeah. I, and I think the fact it's got a terrible name really doesn't help. Okay, a rebrand on the cards. <laughs> all right, so the final question. So all the news this week has been about funding, um, but very briefly from both of you, should the NHS and social care also be restructured? So some people want to bring an end to the marketization of healthcare and private contracts or bring social care into the NHS. What have you got? So I'm going to talk about social care here because I'm quite interested in the question. There's been a lot of talk recently about funding mechanisms for social care, but there's also a question of what kind of system do we actually want to build? And I think at the moment we have a system which includes big chain companies that, like, for instance, Four Seasons, which was all over the news about a year ago, because it was close to collapse. And Four Seasons supports 17,000 older people. Uh, It employs 25,000 staff. And so the fact that it was at risk of falling apart was hugely significant. And it really brings a lot of precarity, actually, to the social care system. 
On top of that, there's evidence from the Care Quality Commission that smaller providers actually deliver better outcomes to people as well. So I think in any reform of the social care system and in the green paper, which we're now expecting in the autumn, I would like to see an intention to shift away from these bigger providers towards community scale providers, which can also help social care to be a little bit more ambitious than perhaps sometimes it is, because social care in the most ambitious sense can be about helping people to lead the best lives that they possibly can. Uh, And connecting people into the community is a really big part of that and is also a really important determinant of health as well and well-being. Fantastic. Andy, same question. Two minutes. Um, they haven't actually said which autumn, have they? <laughs> they haven't told us whether it's autumn 18, autumn 19. And, and so, you know, that always quite makes me smile. Um, yes, uh, restructuring how you do the provision uh, has got a pretty terrible name in the NHS because it's sort of, it's it's almost a default knee-jerk response to to, to any change. I mean, mm. it, 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 it's kind of known in health policy jargon as re-disorganisation because it doesn't really, you know, very frequently you're just making people apply for their jobs back, you're changing the names on, you know, brass plates outside doors and, 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 and you're not actually changing very much. Um, I would significantly prefer to see radical organizational stability so don't change the structures don't change the boxes don't change the names of things but mm. but but i do think we need to start to get hold of the determinants of health the the, the things which will you know potentially you're not going to rem- you know realistically what you do with demand for healthcare is you you might make it happen a bit later Mm. You don't make it go away, mm. by and large. But 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 our problem at the moment is that with things like obesity, poor diets, people are getting health unhealthy years before, possibly decades before they otherwise would. Um, so you know, I mean, it's one of the great rhetorical mainstays of health policy. But yeah, a radical upgrade of public health would be good. The I mean, the stuff about marketization and and privatization. I'm very sceptical about um, arguments that the NHS is being covertly privatised. I I find those arguments almost entirely nonsense for the good and simple reason that show me where I can go and buy shares. Mm. You know, where's the IP offer? Nobody's nobody's doing an offer of the NHS to the market. And they're not doing it for a good reason, which is basically the private sector might sometimes be silly, but it's rarely completely stupid. And it's not going to take on an unlimited, uncapped, you know, universal requirement to offer care to the entire population. So the whole idea of privatising the NHS is, is nonsense. And I wish people would stop talking about it because what you would be talking about is abolishing the NHS. To be honest with you, you don't find very many party politicians who are talking about their desire to abolish the NHS because the British people demonstrably like it. Interesting. Some food for thought there. I'm sure our listeners will be tweeting us furiously. Uh, Okay, so we have a final question now, which is we like to look forward at the end of these podcasts, do a bit of prediction so that we can bring you on later and then prove that you were wrong. It's really fun. (laughs) So a final futuristic question for both of you is in another 30 years, the NHS is going to be 100 years old. Um, So assuming it makes it that far, uh, what is one way in which it's going to look different robot doctors something like sexy and exciting to end with <laughs> you both look so um, right uh how's it going to look different um we'll access it an awful lot reaches for smartphone we'll, we'll access a lot of services using this thing 
Uh, it, it sounds sounds radical, but you know it's mm. it's still effectively in its infancy. I had a very good experience where I had some uh, I had to go and have some treatment at the at the Royal Free Hospital in North London, and and really really great communication by text message reminded me about my appointments, telling mm-hmm. me what I needed to bring, mm-hmm. etc. Now that's so basic. That's that's nineties technology, but I was still relatively surprised to find it. So you know. I, I think the NHS is likely to still exist in 30 years' time. I think one of the things we will notice is that we will use technology to access it a great deal more. And I think we'll probably use technology, as, which is already available right on this phone here. I think we'll probably use technology to give us nudges and prompts about maintaining our own health. I, I, I do mm-hmm. think that one of the mm-hmm. conversations which we are very likely to see develop as the question of tax and, and you know, therefore resources and inputs into both health and social care and yeah across the piece frankly mm. it, it feels to me like we're going to be mo- the, the next government that actually does anything rather than simply struggles to survive which has kind of been the way of recent government i think the next thing i'm not actually going to do anything is going to ha- need a, a kind of quite a grown-up conversation with the public about the fact that if you want universal public services they cost quite a lot of money therefore you've got to pay for them one way mm. or another Okay. Sarah? So I, this is something that I would like to see rather than something that I think necessarily we will see. Um, That's fine. Bit of hope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like to see more investment put in the people who deliver the NHS to us. Mm. I think one thing that was, again, worrying about Theresa May's funding announcement was that all of that money that she's announced that's going to the NHS isn't going to Health Education England, who train the workforce. Fantastic. Uh, I say this every week, but I could talk about this all evening, but that's all we've got time for. <laughs> that's become my uh, my tagline. Um, but no, thanks both so much for joining us. Uh, Sarah Bedford from the New Economics Foundation um, and Andy Cowper, who's comment editor of the Health Service Journal. If people want to hear more from either of you, how can they do that? Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't use it that frequently, but if someone tweets at me, I will respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and also check out the Neff blogs as nice. well. Great. Neff blogs. Sarah Bedford on Twitter. Andy. Yes, I'm also a Twitter person. I'm at HBI Andy Cowper, uh, mm-hmm. and I have. Uh, my own website which is Health Policy Insight which hasn't been updated for a hugely long time um, but you can read my weekly column if they subscribe to the Health Service Journal and various other stuff fantastic okay so that's it for this week if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it if you're feeling really generous you can leave us a review in your podcast app and you can drop us a line with your comments questions feelings sensations we are at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter the Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith see you next week